<laughs> so, but you've been writing 25 years. Uh, tell us a little bit. I mean, this is your first major film credit, right? Yeah. You've been out of the yeah. film school how long? 2001. 2001. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, there's no uh, absolute... You know, everyone's story is different, but it's interesting. You're at a film school. What are you going to do afterwards? Um, it takes a while to build a career. You learn, so what did you learn at the school that was useful, and how did you proceed after school to a point where you were ready when the call came? Well, really, what, what I, the, the thing I brought out of film school was the technical stuff. When I came out, I was able to earn a, a living as a, a camera assistant, uh, as a sound recordist, as, and as an editor. So I was always writing on the side, but it was really the stuff that I learned here. And when I say that, I should also say that when I came to film school, I'd been making uh, short films on video, basically, for about 10 years. I knew nothing about, I didn't know the difference between an F-stop or a T-stop. I knew nothing about cameras or film sets whatsoever. And then the two, three years here, by the end of it, I was focused pulling on 35mm anamorphic. So it was the skills I learnt technically that actually carried me through and allowed me to, to continue writing. So how you went, you continued working basically as a technician in yeah. film and continued to write, continued to pitch, but nothing much was happening. Money wasn't coming in, you weren't getting commissioned. No. How did this happen? How did you suddenly get elevated to Hollywood and were able to buy me a pint finally <laughs> after, you know? Uh, it was years. the shock in the system. <laughs> the classic story of uh, knowing someone. I've known Neil Marshall, who directed Dog Soldiers and The Descent for quite a long time. Where, um, we used to make films together when we were teenagers, basically. And we've all sort of known each other. And um, Warner Brothers approached him to direct Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and he put my name forward as one of the writers, and it was, I mean, an absolute outside chance, long shot that I was going to get this job. Uh, and I just went berserk, basically, and turned in a 60-page treatment, which had about 40 pages of script pages in it. Uh, and that was, that's what got me the job. In the end. Let's get clear technically here for those who are, you know, developing their filmmaking and screenwriting skills. Um, a 60-page treatment, that's not conventional, is it? I mean, no, no, when we talk about treatment, we're talking about the story pages, in prose form. If you're doing a term two project, we want one or two pages max. If you're doing a feature, maybe 20. And no dialogue, it's just prose. So yeah, how come yeah. 60 pages? What's that called? Uh, a scriptment is what they call it. Some executive somewhere has come up with this term and uh, patted himself on the back for it, I'm sure, Alec. <laughs> but to me, it was just a question. I thought, if I'm going to get this job, they've got to see how I write pages. So it was, it was, that's what drove me on to By do pages, it. Pages, you mean so, pages of a screenplay? Yeah, formatted script and, pages. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so in that went, and what happened next? Um, I had to rewrite it once, and then over the Christmas 2006, 2007, it was just a question of, I had my breath held to find out if I'd get it. I found out uh, New Year 2007 they were going to commission me to write it. So the credits up here, there's, um, you, there's a co-writing credit on the story yeah. and there's three credits on the screenplay. Yeah. Could you tell us something about the difference between story and screenplay and how these credits were assigned in the end? Well, the story was really came up with between me and Lionel Wigram, who there's four producers credited and three of them are on there basically because Guy Ritchie and Robert Downey Jr. came onto the project. One of them is his wife. One of them is Dan Lynn, who was an executive at uh, Warner's, and the other is Joel Silver. But the fourth producer is Lionel Wigram, who is really, it's his film, it's not Guy Ritchie's film. He was there at the start. And, He's uh, a creative producer. He really yeah. is, absolutely a creative producer. And there's not and that many, I think, who are as creative as he is. Like. And you were involved in developing the story with him. Yeah, yeah. Um. So really, because originally the credit really read, line, story by Lionel Wigram, I got the credit because the guild, the, the script goes to arbitration at the end of the process and went to an automatic arbitration because there was that a That is a committee involved. of writers, part of the Writers Guild of America. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They look at the different drafts, the different mm -hmm. contributions, and then they decide on how to yeah. lay out the credits. It's almost the split, it's almost the story would be decided on how would you, how would you see the film written as a treatment, which is it? as it would be in prose, and who contributed to that structure of it. And then the screenplay credit is arbitrated by how the screenplay, things like character and dialogue, and scene-by-scene -scene breakdown of the script applies to, to who wrote it. You wouldn't have got much of a credit for the dialogue in that film, would you? No because dialogue of mine remains at all. No dialogue. Well, one line of, of dialogue. Remains one line film. of dialogue. <laughs> what <laughs> remains of your original story, and why have you got... Uh, a credit mm. as a screenwriter um, none of your dialogue is up there 
The dialogue's not, not seen as particularly important in Hollywood in terms of a script. Dialogue's always the catch. If you get rewritten, the dialogue will always be rewritten completely by the next writer who's on there, every time. Um, is it the case but, that it's fun, you know, the fundamental thing in a screenplay is the structure? Yeah, yeah. The shape of it, the story and the characters, and that's largely you. It is, yeah. I mean, the, fun, the, the idea that it's at the point in Holmes and Watson's relationship where they're, they're moving out, they're not roommates anymore. Um, the story that Blackwood uh, is executing comes back from the dead, all this sort of stuff remains right back to the original screenplays, yeah. How about research? What kind of research did you do either on the Holmes characters, on, their, on Holmes's particular psychology, uh, and or Victorian London? Well, the Victorian London, I just did lots and lots of internet stuff. I wanted to find basically uh, contemporary reports from the time, stuff that had been written by people who were alive at the time. Um, and it allowed me to find, during that research, that the Tower Bridge was being constructed, which was one of those real light bulb moments of, OK, I've never seen that on screen before. That's got to go in the script. It's got to be in there. <coughs> the character really was, was, was simpler. I mean, it goes back to the idea that we wa wanted to keep him as an intellectual character. It could have really gone the awful Hollywood route if he just becomes simply an action hero. But we always had this idea that, that there's not much written about Holmes' father, but Conan Doyle's father basically drank himself into an asylum. So the idea was that Holmes, under uh, that Holmes' father's done this, and he's seen his father go mad, and he has this belief in himself that he has the capacity to go mad. So the reason he has become this incredible intellect is in trying to study himself to prevent himself from going insane. And that was the starting point of the character. So everything he does as the great detective is sort of an offshoot of this psychological disability he's got inside himself somewhere. Uh, and that was the core of it. That was really, once I'd got that, it all sort of stemmed out from there. How about the relationship with Dr. Watson? How important was that? for you and the original story? That was important that it didn't come across like the old films where Watson basically is this bumbling idiot who follows Holmes around and sort of writes his adventures down. Because in the books, he's, he is this Afghan war veteran. He served for three years. He was in this, I can't remember the name of the battle, but it was this incredible sort of retreat across Afghanistan. And uh, it was, he had to be at least, and if not the intellectual equal, he had to have uh, as an action sidekick, for want of a better word, he had to remain an equal in those terms to him. That was very important, unfortunately. And the sort of buddy-buddy thing about, you know, the woman coming in between them and, mm. and you know, the homoerotic subtext. Mm. The, the, that's the, the actors, guy that's Richie, really the actors, obviously. Like, yeah. The actors, are, you know. <laughs> it was never that way never. in the script. It was just these two guys who've been roommates for a long time. They've spent a lot of time together. They're friends. And Holmes is linked to... Uh, to um, Reality really is Watson, and Watson being taken away from it is something he can't handle. So, yeah, the homoerotic stuff is purely, it's just Jude Law, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, could you say something about the, 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 the kind of the background to the plot? Where did the plot ideas come from? And it's an, I mean, you went into it as a self, self consciously as a genre picture, as an action picture. Yeah, yeah. Um, where did you get the ideas for the, the kind of satanic cult, as some people call it? But it seemed to me it kind of was a conflation of the Order of the Golden Dawn and yeah, Freemasons. Yeah. I mean, Sherlock Holmes was a Freemason anyway, wasn't he? That, that wasn't in that your That was picture. not something that was in the sort of, <laughs> that, that, that came out of me, really. That was all sort of stuff that came out of Lionel Wigram again, the producer. Um, because really the way Harry Potter works in that it's all sort of slightly occulty. Warner Brothers wanted that element to Sherlock Holmes, so that was really the reason for it. Uh, I did a certain amount of research into stuff and Crowley and all this sort of stuff, but it wasn't... My very first treatment was a straight sort of action film, and it was really the uh, Warner Brothers wanted it to be. OK, and in that, in that first treatment, did you pack in uh, every possible location in London that Everything, Americans... Everything wow, yeah, OK. That an American um, studio would want to see in a, in a British... Could you give me some examples? That oh, St no Paul's, Buckingham Palace, Victoria was in there. I mean, the Tower Bridge stuff was there. Everything I could think of. The, there was... I discovered at one point that the Tube was actually running in the time that... that that's at a late 80s, early 1890, uh, 1890s period, so... The tube was, there was actually a stop in Baker Street while Holmes would have been alive. So it was just all these sort of things. What do Americans come and see 
on the tourist trail in London was in the treatment. <laughs> it's very cynical, I admit. It's very cynical. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, as motives of the plot, I mean, you, you've got the plot, you've got the MacGuffin, you've got, you know... I mean, whose idea was it actually that the, uh, the ambition of the plot was not only to reinvigorate the British Empire, but to take back the American colonies? Whose idea was that? That was... The ha- there was it, it was to try to find some sort of relevance to going, going through this idea of the... the the chemical weapon was where it came from. And the idea, but the idea of taking back the American territories was quite vague in my sort of treatment. That, I think, was something that uh, one of the later either American writers or executives came up with because it opens the scope for I the I think there's something audience, there, actually. I think there is something there, actually, you know, as a, as a story idea. But in terms of the story that you worked on there, okay, so you've got, you've got the buddy-buddy relationship, you've got the overarching occult plot to take over the world, mm. Uh, you had this this woman in there too. Mm. Now that she, that was, she did, was she, much she doesn't stronger. appear in Conan Doyle stories, does she? That I, I mean, remember. She and does. Really, she's she... in the first short story, Scandal in Bohemia. She's this woman who's bested homes, so he's always okay. had this sort of thing for her. Um, it was much. She was a much <clears throat> stronger character in the original treatment I'd written. Like, uh, I do think Rachel McAdams is slightly miscast because the. The problem she brings to it is that the whole point of the Irene character is she's supposed to be Holmes as equal. She's supposed to be equally as clever and as cunning and as damaged. And I don't think that ever really comes across in the, uh, in the, in the finished film. But would the problem structurally be if she was as, as good as Holmes, it would take away from Moriarty, which is the franchise, presumably, because Moriarty is supposed to be as smart as Holmes, maybe smarter. Yeah, but Moriarty isn't damaged, so he da- Moriarty doesn't have the flaws in the same way that Holmes and Irene had the flaws. They're sort of victims of their own upbringing, whereas Moriarty's not. Well, the guy who spends a lot of time in, in the dark, in shadow. <laughs> yeah, that's just, not he's, just got, he's just got a few nefarious past oh, okay, okay. He's just uh, Okay, well, we'll leave it. <laughs> we'll let that one rest. Okay. Um, so... I mean, in terms of uh, your original concept, your original idea, what are the major differences that when the Guy Ritchie team came in and, and, and took over and advanced it? I mean, for example, the flashbacks, were, were they, is this the Guy Ritchie style where it's yeah, all there's a few slowed things, down, yeah, boom, yeah. boom, 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 and then we see it in real time? Was yeah. that, that wasn't yeah, that was never in the Yeah, that was never in the script, like. Um <laughs> Mostly Mostly, the, the balance changed in... in in the, original, in the original script, it was much more a story about Holmes and Irene. And in this, it's obviously a story about Holmes and Watson. Um, there was always the idea that Mary's coming between them, but Mary was a much more minor character. It was, she was merely the sort of the minor MacGuffin for what was happening in their relationship. That's Watson's girlfriend. Watson's girlfriend, yeah. 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 The idea that Holmes has to come to terms with them being married, though, was actually was part of the script. That wasn't there. And you had him as a bare knuckle fighter, which yeah, of course all, yeah. that's probably what attracted Guy Ritchie to the. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> that and the homoerotic subtext. Because two boxes were ticked there, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but that was in the original home stories, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. He was, yeah, a, yeah. He was also a swordsman. <laughs> Did you not use that? In the original treatment, he had the sword stick. Yeah, not uh, not Watson. But I mean, an awful lot of it does go back to the books. He was a bare knuckle boxer. He was he was interested in martial arts. It's, it's, there's very little fabrication about the character, which I find, what I found is the most strongest thing about how you reinvent this character, is it's just all there in the books. Fantastic. Or it's all there underneath the books, I should say. Like it's, it's hinted at in ways where you can take it without having to completely invent something new to sort of to go on top of it. Okay, so, I mean, the main guiding light for you in terms of the character of this Holmes that you were working with was, here's a man on the edge, that when he wasn't active... Mm. He was kind of hyperactive, really. He was kind of bipolar. He, was, he could tip yeah, into depression. Yeah. And that, that gave you an idea of how he was when nobody else was around him and when he didn't I, have a case. I think so. Again, it just goes back to this idea that is the greatest mystery in his life is how does he solve himself? How does he stop himself going insane? So when he doesn't have something to focus on, you know, if he's got a mystery, he will not stop until it's solved because he has to work it out. Because ultimately, this mystery of himself... And the world and the universe around him is a mystery which he can never solve. So trying to solve the unsolvable is what allows him to solve the solvable, if you see what I mean. And when he doesn't have that process around him is when he descends into the sort of madness that he... Uh... But that's material for, you know, for the next franchise, isn't it? For the next episode is that 
you're right, you know, if Sherlock Holmes is essentially, I mean, he, he emerged in the, in the late 19th century in a world that was exploding with mystery, mm. with industrial magic. And, and people went to these stories, and one of the arguments is that detective stories really, you know, kicked off then uh, as a way of offering a solution uh, and unraveling the mysteries of, mm. of the universe. But of course, for humans, the greatest mystery, apart from the universe itself, is humans themselves. And Freud was just around the corner. He was going to unravel that mystery. Mm. That was that was his task. And um, maybe if Holmes turned, you know, his his deductive mind mm. upon himself, that that might be. You see, I think he can't. I think that's that's the major flaw in him. Is he can he can he can work out the facts. He can put the pieces together. But people are slightly a mystery to him because there's no tangible sort of thing he can get a hold of. There's always this sort of fluid mystery to him. Like, and I think that again is what makes him an interesting character. I think because the problem. To a certain extent, well, it's not really a problem with the books. I mean, in the books, he's very playful the way the character approaches his intellect and introduces things. And in a lot of films, he's been this sort of super intellectual, untouchable, never wrong character. And that's just basically sort of uninteresting in a film. So you have to find ways to, to make him fallible. And that was one of the ones for me. I mean, I think one of the... It's not a scene I wrote, but I think the scene where they go, where Holmes and Watson go and have the meal with Mary at the start of the film... And the scene at the end, after she sort of says, oh, he, he, uh, I didn't leave him, yeah, he died. And it just stops on Robert Downey's face. That's one of the crucial moments for me because you can see he's realised he was wrong about something and you have to have that. With a film character for me, you have to have that. You have to have that sense of fallibility. Otherwise, it's just not empathetic to any degree. I guess, and, and where it makes sense to us is that he's a kind of over-analytical type who's at one end of the spectrum. So, you know, for all his intelligence... But, I mean, how does this square that he he isn't able to empathise with people's feelings? Or, I mean, isn't that somehow a hindrance? And, and I an think so. He, he overanalyzes something yeah. which can't really be analysed because he's, he's having to speculate. And, and a lot of everything he does in his deductions, there's always final stops that he comes to, and you can't do that with humans. All this sort of reminds me that he also had a cocaine habit. Mm. Uh, and that doesn't figure in his character in this. Uh, uh, well, it, he was it, there were allusions poisons. to it, which I think are Robert Downey Jr. Right. <laughs> wanting to have illusions. <laughs> in my version, he was he was he was a drinker because that's the only thing Warner Brothers would allow. It's this thing of he drinks when he's not on a case, and when a case comes up, he stops drinking and starts the case. But powers far more powerful than me have decreed that he uh, he's obviously on the sidelines. He's got a little packet of something somewhere. In terms of developing the script, how important was it to quite early on have a sense of where it was going? You know, this idea that everything is building to the end. And, mm. you know, a lot of writers I know say that they need to know that in order to, to judge how to get there with a, an escalating yeah. sense of crises. Was, I think you have to, you have to, yeah, it was. I mean, for me, that moment when I knew that Tower Bridge was constructed, that was a moment where I knew that was going to be the ending because visually with it never having been on screen before, it sort of takes care of itself in terms of action because it's quite fresh. But the other thing I knew as well at the end was that um, Holmes doesn't get the girl, which he sort of does and doesn't in the version. In my version, what happens at the end is that Irene is sort of pushed to her apparent death by, uh, by Blackwood from the top of Tower Bridge. Uh, Holmes thinks she, uh, she's dead and loses all intellectual rationality and there's this much more ferocious fight, much more animal sword fight on top of Tower Bridge. Blackwood's killed and then at the end, the first time you see Moriarty is when he's coming up river on a boat to collect Irene and the last sequence of the, of the sort of the climax is Holmes on top of the Tower Bridge and Irene on the boat with Moriarty and Holmes realises that Moriarty, that, that Irene's also Moriarty's lover as well. So there's this sort of, the, 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 um, the plot with Blackwood is wrapped up, but the emotional story of Holmes and Irene isn't. And to me, that's just, that was what I was aiming for at the end, because I like stuff which has got that sort of weight to it, where you're left with a certain crisis, which I think you can do with characters, you can't do with plot, but it's a lot more sanitised, I think, in the version. There. And in the spirit of action 
<clears throat> picture is she'd fallen 100 feet onto a coal barge and survived. No, she'd fallen into the water is what she'd done. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. But she would have had to have cut it like a knife, otherwise her stomach would have split open. But we yes, don't worry about see, these. Is, uh, <coughs> it's all in the editing. It's all in the editing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, shall we open it to the floor? Are you ready for sure, yeah, yeah, questions absolutely. from London Film School students? Yeah, absolutely. Um, feel free. Questions, please. Sir, gentleman at the back there. Freddie, his name is. Um... Although I didn't, th the plot's quite complex, but it's not complicated. Um, and when writing and you're coming up with all these obstacles that you have to explain <laughs> for believability, mm. I can imagine it getting to the point where you just think, how do I explain this? And did you come a cropper when writing the treatment? And if so, how did you write through and give yourself the self-confidence to say, I can keep going with this story? Um, it's just trying not to complicate it, really. I mean, I think the, the, the tendency I used to find in, in terms of writing is that you try, is that when you've got a plot, you want to make it complicated, you want to make it challenging, and it's sort of the wrong way to go. It's, it's, the key for me is keeping it as simple as possible, keeping everything in as straight a line as you can and putting complicated characters in it. And that actually stops you writing yourself into a corner because the problem with, with that sense of overcomplicating is you end up just writing plot and you actually don't end up writing characters at which point it actually it starts to fall in on itself remember <laughs> <laughs> another question uh, gentleman in the middle yeah. okay <laughs> uh, this is more for uh, after the film was released um, but today, where the internet's much more pre prevalent and you have things like IMDb where people would blast you and think, do you ever take a peek at what people have been saying about... Occasionally, yeah, yeah. And you don't feel like you just no, try and keep it out? Or I'm anything? just detached from it. I mean, the thing is, I went into the whole process of, of doing it, of knowing that... Uh, I'll give it 100% when I'm writing it, but it's just, you have to, I'm not personal about it. Like, once I'm off the project, what people are writing, it's not me. I mean, it's, the reasons people might like something are exactly the same reasons as why people might dislike it. So you just have to keep a distance from it. Like. So no, I just don't get bothered by it. Uh, gentleman over here. Uh, Kave. Yeah. yeah, I'm just wondering uh, how early in the process did you know that like Jude Law and Robert Downey Jr. would be playing your characters and how would that affect or not affect if you did or didn't um, know the I, I, I never had to go through that because I finished on the project um, September 2007 and Guy Ritchie didn't come on board with, and Robert Downey Jr. till sort of summer 2008 so it was never a situation I had to deal with but I mean I don't really think about characters to any degree uh, sorry think about actors when I'm writing I try not to except in one instance <laughs> where I, I um I did a, 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 a new version of Three Musketeers for Warner Brothers. I don't know if you've seen the Richard Lester film, which is Charlton Heston, who does the, uh, the Cardinal. Mm. And I had to think of a different actor to not think about Charlton Heston. <laughs> it was impossible Logical not train. to write down. No, it was George C. Scott. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the only time I've ever thought of actors. But no, I never had to go through that, that, that process, what you're saying. Would it, would it have like affected you in a much different way had you known? Like, had they said to you, we're doing a Sherlock Holmes mm. film, Robert Downey Jr. is going to play him. Do you think that would have heavily influenced the I think it would have treatment? probably not been something I would have actually had any conscious control over because as soon as he was on he would be involved in script discussions and stuff so it would just sort of organically for want of a better word go in that direction so but I mean if it happened it wouldn't have bothered me I mean to me I'm working for Warner Brothers who are the clients or whatever direction it goes that's the way it goes isn't it? It's hard to write. The problem with writing with, with, with a, an actor in mind as well is you start to second guess the sort of the, the way they enunciate words and the rhythms and stuff. And of course, they try to read it, and it's just completely unlike the way they speak it. So, and actors throw all the dialogue out when they get the set, anyway. So. <laughs> Gentlemen, there in the middle. Uh, you mentioned you had a backstory in place for uh, actual for Sherlock Holmes. Uh, two questions. One is, do you write? Backstories for all the main characters, and do you do this before you even know the plot, or what's the process? Of no, I've never done it beforehand. I, it usually crops up if I get stuck, and I want to know what. I'm, sometimes it doesn't. I don't require it with any character. Sometimes they, they just the character. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you know what it's like when you hit a good day. You're just hearing the characters talk in your head, 
and you're just you're just writing down what they what they actually what the, the conversations are having. It's just, on a bad day, I might have to work out why someone would do something, but I don't really. I'm not really one someone who does these huge details to the twenty page backstories for characters. I just need the starting point. Really. On a bad day, by the way, do you is that when you hear your wife shout, "What are you doing in there?" <laughs> no, no, bad day. I don't hear anything on a bad day. <laughs> do you still go for lunch? Do you still break regularly? I mean. You treat it like like a brickie, you know. You you go, in, you sit down, lay a line of words, and you know. And if you that's all you've done at one o'clock, off you go for lunch, or do you no, commend yourself uh, until you've got squeeze something out. Yeah, I, I wanted to get some stuff out of it. Yeah, mm. yeah. I, I made the mistake when I started writing professionally before before Holmes and doing other stuff of thing. Right, okay, I'll do eight pages a day, and then I'll have a script in X number of weeks. Problem is, is if you actually get stuck, you went, you then spend eight pages writing a single dialogue scene, which is going to take two pages in the script. And the worst project I worked on, I ended up, I got to a page about 130 and realised I wasn't writing a 120-page movie. I was writing a 280-page movie, and it was because I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> Good. So, I mean, ha- having an idea what you're doing would also involve having a notion of where it was going. Mm. Uh, give it a yeah, for me, I like to have, I, I mean, there's, there's three stages really of, of how I do it. A treatment where I know the bulk of what the character's going to do and the bulk of where the story's going to go. And then before I start writing the actual script is then do it like a script where I've got the slug line and sort of every scene, but just write notes for what that scene's going to be. A bit like the card system, but obviously... Scene outline, step outline. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, and, mm. and then so the do you do a lot of character... I mean, do you actually <laughs> write... Uh, like a page on each of the characters or something. Do you do, you do a little Bible for yourself or no, you know? Not really. I mean, no? it's it, like I say, if it's helpful, I do. But if mm. not, I mean, you either know I, I tend to know where they are before, be, just through the first document I ever have is just one document where all I do is put everything in in a certain order and where I think they'll come out. And when I write treatments, I put character notes in the basis in in the in the, the body of the work when the actual when they'll turn up in the story. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay. Another another question, and I'll be right back. You just carry on. I'll be right. Uh, when you write, to to what extent you concern about um, structure, and do you think about three act story? Do you think about inciting incident? Yeah, I do, yeah. but yeah. I never used to. I mean, I, I've only really done it since I've been working in Los Angeles because you have to. Um, but, I mean, you have to, that's the thing, because the basic thing is I'm writing scripts for executives who don't really understand scripts. I mean, with the best will in the world. So you have to have a structure that they understand. So you have to sort of force yourself to write that way. I think the thing is you can do it in different ways. The, the classic bad way of doing it is that you get a film where for 30 minutes nothing happens. It's just introduction of people, and then there'll be an incident, and then you're off in the story. And I think it's, you know... Um, have you seen Dog Day Afternoon, the Al Pacino film? I mean, it just starts, it just goes. And you can, you can, you can put a three-act structure on top of that. I think the thing is, you, is don't be, you don't have to be constricted by it. Like, and it, 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 it feels like a constrictive thing when you start trying to learn how to use it. But you can actually use it for your own benefit, certainly. But you do have to think like that way, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm just wondering. You had a, you, you said you had a bit of a dry period between 2001 until maybe now, like in terms of your writing. So I was wondering, in the industry for people that are graduating from this school, what would, from your experience, what have you done that you think could have sped up the process of maybe breaking into the industry, or what mistakes you've made, or like if you could talk about that? I have no idea how to answer that question. I have no idea at all, to be honest. I mean, I've never really had any sort of plan. I've just done what's happened one step to the next and there's times when I think I might have missed opportunities and stuff but I honestly don't know how I could have sped it up faster I mean I can't believe I'm, I'm writing in Hollywood now to be perfectly honest like, so, so I'm afraid I haven't got no answer for that <laughs> uh, when you're writing in uh, your process do you ever before like before sending the script to the client 
Would you first uh, show it to somebody that you trust? Yeah, like, yeah. Hey, just give me feedback. Always, or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like your friends or people um, in the industry. It's people I know who'll be brutally honest. You know, it's that thing you get. You've done it for three months, six months. You want someone who's going to go. That shit. That shit. That works. Get rid of that. You've got to have it because, like I say, I mean, I mean that. I'm bad man, the executives. There are people in the in the industry who are very good at reading scripts, and people people who don't know how to read scripts employ people who are very good, very good at reading scripts, but they won't give you the honest opinion you need. You need people who uh, don't mind upsetting you. Basically, very valuable to do. I mean, you went into a meeting recently, did you not? Um, are we allowed to name names? <laughs> which one? Which, uh, which one did I tell you about? <laughs> <laughs> Working title. Oh yes, yeah. yeah. Um, well, without having to name names, but the <clears throat> the producer admitted uh, he was in there. What with the head of development? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Eric Fellner, who's sort of runs work and tell him and, and Tim Bevan, like and uh, him and the producer. I was meeting with Deborah Haywood when I went in. Eric made absolutely no bones about the fact that he hadn't read my script at all. Like that he was having the meeting because Deborah was. But it was great. It was really refreshing because it was just the moment I knew that the mo- I just knew I wasn't going to get wasn't going to get any bullshit out of him. Like. But you got this meeting with with what is probably you know the, <clears throat> the the top production company in London simply on the back of having written Sherlock Holmes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah having a credit. So it's open doors, 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 doors. It has Be- indeed. Before that, it, yeah. they wouldn't have looked at you. You wouldn't have got a meeting with Eric Feldman. No, 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 I wouldn't have done no, that. No, no. No. It's the hard realities of the business. Other questions. There must be some gentlemen. Yeah, hi. Um, I just, uh, watching the film, it's quite clear that you're kind of setting up for a sequel. I was just wondering, how do you uh, approach your uh, character arcs, also story arcs, uh, and the way you use antagonists and villains, knowing that you're going to be carrying on the story for more episodes? How do you approach that? Well, the only thing I really did, because, I mean, the the sequel's being written now, which I'm not a part of, and neither are any of the other writers who are on it. Different director at all? No, I think it'll be Guy Ritchie again, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was really the idea, it was the Moriarty thing, it was a sort of, I loved the way in the James Bond films, those early James Bond films, Blofeld is just this presence in the background, and there's no real confrontation until you only live twice, the fifth one. The cat, there's the cat though. Yeah, but he's always, he's just sort of, it's, he's just there, Bond never has any contact with him until Donald Pleasance turns yeah. up. Does Moriarty have anything to stroke? Yeah, well, nefarious habits, we shall find out. But, uh, <laughs> no, but it, it was just the idea that... You expect Moriarty to be in a Sherlock Holmes film and the idea of not having him there builds up some expectation. But I didn't really think anything other than, like I said before, I wanted Holmes and Irene to finish the film with no resolution to their, to their relationship other than the fact that they'd sort of found each other and worked out that they were in love with each other and then they get pulled apart. But I hadn't really worked out where it went after that. So there was degree. no actual character arc that you kind of figured out from no, not to any degree. I didn't think it was worth putting the work into doing it because I didn't know if it was ever going to come to anything or me being involved with it. It was just a vague notion of if I did get to a point of doing it again, I would know where to pick up. The corner? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed the story, characters. Cheers. Um, one of my favourite things about Sherlock Holmes is they really make you believe in something mysterious and supernatural, and then they explain it to you, and they make you feel like a fool. And I think that this, the story was really successful in doing that. Um, I think my question is kind of about how you as a writer had to separate yourself from reality. And namely, this is a small thing, and it probably wouldn't bother me if I didn't live in London, but so much of the, the story was explained, and the, the, the outlandish aspects of the story were explained, but then, I mean, they're in the basement of Parliament, and next thing you know, they're on the Tower Bridge. That's uh, nothing to do with it's me. The magic of movies. Yeah. <laughs> it's all in the editing. <laughs> but, I, but I am curious. I mean, was, was there a moment in, in crafting a story that, that relies so much on logical explanation to think, like, how are they going to you know, get from well, Westminster? The draft I wrote, it was all geographically acceptable that they could get to certain places. So there was time gaps and stuff like that, but... You know, it's just the nature of if you're going to have Parliament, because the actual ending actually took place in Tower in the Tower of London, which obviously is right next to Tower Bridge. But in you know, whoever's wisdom, they decided to put in the House of Parliament. But you can't spend 
15 minutes getting from the Houses of Parliament to Tower Bridge. Yeah, and so. I mean, like I said, I would never have noticed so. it otherwise if I didn't mm. live here, but... Yeah, yeah that's but, the thing. It but when you wrote it, when you, when, you, when you did write it and craft the story, you had... You even, you kept the geography. I did as much as I possibly could. Yeah, I did. Didn't you? Because it just makes me feel more comfortable as a writer trying to yeah. create a world that they actually go into. You know. Didn't you also have an, an earlier draft? Uh, you used underground London, the tunnels and the tunnel yeah. Lines. I was saying before, must be yeah. when you're out. Yeah. Okay. Just like to say first that I, I very much enjoyed it. Uh, it's the second time I've seen it. Um, just going back to, the, I guess, the issue of uh, having other writers that are on board. Um, just even the ending that you described. I mean, uh, I personally would have loved to have seen that 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 twist on it yeah, or the too. original <laughs> interpretation of it. Is it is it hard for you to watch like the finished movie and not think about, oh, well, I love this exchange here that I wrote, or if this was a little different? Is it is it hard for you to watch this movie? No, no. So you've just got to, like I said before, you've just got to disconnect yourself from it. I mean, if you don't, the industry will destroy you, basically. And and the other thing as well is, I like I say, I mean, it's been it was two and a half years since I stopped writing on it to seeing the film. So you do that that sense of time, you know, distance yourself, distances you from it. There are scenes when I watch it where I think my scene was better, but there's also scenes where I watch it and I think their scenes are better. So. No, it's just, you've and just then you remember the money in the bank and you think <laughs> everything's there. Yeah, the money's not that good. Like, yeah. It's just enough to keep me in debt. <laughs> right to the back. Um, there's, there's a draft of the script in the internet. Uh, are you aware of this? Yes. I think there is. I don't think it's my draft. I think there's a draft which was rewritten. It's the rewrite after I was on it. The, the Tony Peckham, the first Tony Peckham rewrite. Because I thought it said Mike Johnson. It does, but it's not my draft. It's the first uh, Tony. But there's a, there's lots of different versions. I don't know if they're on the internet. There's lots of different versions with lots of different names on a different points. Like, but that one that's on the internet is a rewrite of mine. I don't know how much dialogue of mine's in there, like, but I know that it's it's closer to, to my draft than than this is. But it's not actually my draft. Apparently, also on the internet, there's a, there's a director called Alan Bernstein, and we made two really dreadful films. Alan's <laughs> nothing to do with the Alan Bernstein we all know and love. You would like to escape. Were you a Sherlock? Were you a Sherlock Holmes fan? No, I've never read one of the books before I started. Never. Mm -hmm. I liked a couple of the films, but I was yeah, I was uh, came to it fairly dry. You know, it was based on a Scotsman, really, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I believe it was, wasn't it? it was yeah, the, uh, yes. Bell, is that his name? Was yeah, it? Joseph yeah, Bell, yeah. Scottish doctor. Yeah. yeah. I didn't write that into the script, obviously. <laughs> no, well, maybe the next draft. <laughs> yeah. Just curious, I mean, uh, like when you're writing your story, if you have like explanation, scientific or, you know, otherwise, you know, do you do research? I mean, there's a plausibility factor in, in yeah, it. Yeah, I do. I like to make it as much, you want it, well, first of all, you want it to sound right, but you want, for me, I want someone at least who's got a little bit of knowledge about what you're talking about to go, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I mean, you can't go into it too much, but yeah, I mean, it's the great tool of the internet is you want something you just type the question to google and then a few bit of trolling as i'm sure you know <laughs> but um yeah i like to have at least some semblance of reality to it absolutely yeah so you uh, it's the internet that you do most of the research from like you know it is i mean sometimes there's, there's a library right next to me so sometimes there's books as well but i mean it's as much as there's a point where i'll pass the threshold where i think okay right okay i now believe that this person what this person's talking about sounds like they, they know what they're talking about and you know to an extent do and once i've reached that point once i feel comfortable reaching that point then i won't do any more uh, so basically uh, even if the audience doesn't understand the exact you know uh, the scientific you know explanation or anything it doesn't matter right that's that's one of the uh, i mean for me it's it's you just want it you want it to be a little bit more detailed than the general audience Will no, it's a bit like the tip of the iceberg. You want you want it to to look like the real facts drift off into the territory of, of, of what that arena is, for want of a better word. Like yeah, that makes me feel comfortable when I'm writing. You don't want to fall in love with the research too much, otherwise you become keeps you off writing the pages. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, it's a way of sharpening the pencils, isn't it? But well, actually... internet pool is unfortunately the other way. <laughs> keeps you off the pages. <laughs> Yeah, yeah um, I really dig what you said about not complicating the story and instead just complicating the characters mm. 
And I was wondering whether, whether the story is detailed and complicated as this, at which point did you decide to start complicating it? Well, the thing is that the story, when you actually look at it, isn't actually that complicated. I think the way the deductions work in this is slightly different to the way I had it. And I think they actually did the right thing here. Is it's, a, it's an incredibly complicated process that Holmes goes through, but they don't force you as the viewer to have to work things out yourself, if you see what I mean. It, 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 it separates the two things. Um, was that actually, did you ask me a slightly different question? That? No, 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 I think that's along the lines. It is very much about the deductions and about all the, the details and explanations. And I'm, I'm just kind of, yeah, I'm just kind of curious at what point in, in the story writing process and in the character building process did you decide, like, all right, I've got enough. Now we can start concentrating on the science and, and the details and the explanations and deductions and stuff like that. There wasn't really a point. I mean, they sort of go hand in hand. I mean, it's just getting to a point when you feel... It works, I guess. But was there a point earlier on before that where you had, where you sort of just concentrated on like the dilemmas and, and the conflicts within the characters themselves before you even got into? No, it's the other way around for me. I mean, because yeah. I feel more comfortable writing a characters and dialogue than I do creating stories and, and, and the structured stories. It tends to be my focus is on the structure to begin with, and then when I'm happy with that, then I let the character sort of in, and then. And then I sort of build the two things together, but it's, it's that way around just because I'm more confident with uh, characters and dialogue. Okay, thank you. Nemanja? Uh, how do you approach rewriting other people's script? Do you start from scratch or, or uh, you read the script and then uh, copy-paste? Or is it always from the beginning? In terms completely, of rewriting someone else's script? Yeah, completely new draft. Um, or how it, other writers approach redrafting your... It depends. Your, For me, when draft. I didn't rewrite anyone in this, but I have rewritten people at, in, at other points, and it's... Excuse me. It's basically, for me, it's a question of going through and just circling the things I think work. But I never copy and paste. Unless there's a particular speech or something, I might copy and paste. But usually it's a question of starting from the beginning and just working through. I feel more comfortable doing it that way because you feel... You feel you've covered the bases because you've sort of typed it in yourself. Even to an extent of, you know, if you're, if you're copying sections from it, actually typing it in yourself for me makes me feel more comfortable. Thank you. Um, you were working on something that has a huge precedent to it. So as a writer, how difficult or how easy is it for you to move away from that precedent and create something that is yours? I just try to forget that it has this huge thing to it. It was easy enough for me because, as like I said, I never read the books and stuff. And as I started doing it, and I realised, I just would bump into people that I've known for years and they would tell me how big Sherlock Holmes fans were, which I never knew. And I, I didn't have any sort of real idea of the, how massively popular he really is. Like, but I just divorced myself. And for me, I was just writing this story about a detective who's in London doing this and, uh, you know, deal with the consequences later on, really. I mean, also as well, you're in a situation where I knew whatever point it got to through, even if it, became, if, if it was a disaster and the whole... The internet, Sherlock Holmes community turned against it. It wasn't going to be turned against me. It was going to be turned against whoever directed it. So there was, I had a bit of a get out close there. So, <laughs> so five, six years out there, getting by on the technical side. Um, I believe you even did some focus pulling for and some reading for Guy Ritchie, although you never ever met the guy. Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah. now you've crossed the line. You've got a feature film credit. Tell us about your agent or your agents and your manager <laughs> and tell us about your other projects. What, what, what next? Um, well, next I'm starting a, a project for work and title, which is this one we talk, which is Julius Caesar, but it's, it's, a, it's a sort of a, I'm loath to say an action film about Julius Caesar. It's a pacey film. It's more or less a sort of a gangster film about Julius Caesar. Right? <laughs> you don't see any of the stuff in the forum. There's no sort of big speeches and it's all what goes on behind closed doors. And again, it was one of these weird things to do in the research where I had no idea how utterly, completely corrupt the system was at the time of Caesar. Every election had people being accused of bribery and uh, it just seemed, the more I got into it, the more I thought, yeah, I think you can make a good zingy sort of film out of this. <laughs> okay, so what, it, it, it's, a, it's a sword and sandals crossed with a gangster? You know? No, it's more the sort of, no, it's more the idea of, it's designed as two films, but the first one is how he gets to control of Rome with the triumvirate with Crassus and, uh, and Pompey and then the second one's how he basically ends up going to in, being drawn at the Civil okay, War so what stage it's how that? you get to the top and then how he 
You've, you've written a treatment for this? You've written a script? I've written a treatment and I'm just about to start writing the script. And they're going to pay you to write on the basis of the treatment? They like yeah, the well, they paid me to write the treatment, which is something that doesn't okay. happen in the States. Like, yeah. In the States, it's quite... You, you pitch on certain things and they bring you properties. One of the things I pitched in the summer was a big screen version of MacGyver. You remember MacGyver from the 80s? <laughs> and uh, the thing is, you do six weeks' work, you come up with a sort of, you know, a 20, 25-page treatment and you pitch through various stages to it. But then when you don't get the gig, which they haven't paid you for this work, you then have to chuck it all out because it's their treatment, it's their property, and you start again. So it's quite, you, can, you can spend three or four months working completely for free with the promise of work at the end of it. But uh, fortunately in Britain, they, they pay you to write the treatment, which is <laughs> it's much better. That's what you, the wife, said again. What are you doing in there? <laughs> yeah. well, she doesn't well. <laughs> to be better. <laughs> what about the pirate um, story you were telling me about? Oh, you, you inherited goodness, a, yeah. a script that had previously been written. It was a terrible script. With a, it was with Neil Marshall attached to it again, and the, the, this was for Sony, and they had this. It got rewritten into a treatment where it was basically about a woman who's in her thirties, whose husband is kidnapped by pirates, modern-day pirates, off the coast of Venezuela, and she is basically going right. I'm going to go down and pay the ransom, and everyone's going to her. Don't go down there. They're going to kill you. They're going to kill your husband. It's happened before. Don't do it. And she said, well, I've got it. He's my husband. I've got no choice in this. So that's the sort of start of the story. And she ends up being betrayed by the, the people who take her down there. And it's a sort of action film with 30-year-olds in it. Like, I mean, it's uh, it was sort of... Uh, sex, you know, violence. Sex, violence, scene, drugs, guns. Yeah, yeah. And I go into this meeting and they go, we love the treatment. Fantastic. Like, could Sheila Birth be in it? Hang on a second, okay. And it basically, they wanted a pirate movie, which was a bunch of 19-year-olds being menaced by pirates somewhere in the Caribbean, which bore no relation whatsoever to what I'd gone in there to write. And it's like, you know. So it was like one of the, the, the orange ads for... Exactly you know, yeah. like the orange ad. It was exactly like the orange ad, like in no uncertain terms. So you've, you've also... Did you have an agent before you got this uh, Sherlock Holmes? No, I got the agent off the back of Sherlock So you've Holmes. been writing for 20 years yeah. and you've never had an agent? No. No. Now you've got what? I've got an agent in Los Angeles, another agent who works for the same agency, a manager in Santa Monica, and an agent in London as well. Jesus, so if you can't get work now, <laughs> fucking give up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how many projects have you got on the go? How many things can you keep in your head, and how many balls have you got um, rolling? I can't really write more than one full script at a time, because I get... The problem I find with trying to write two scripts at the same time is if I work on this one, I think I should work on that one. If I'm working on this one, I think I should be working on that one. And I can't, I don't feel I'm giving 100% to what I'm actually doing. But the nature of the business is I, I tend to try and roll around with other ideas and things I can pitch and have meetings where things might spark. So there's always stuff that might be the next project after I've finished the one I'm involved with. The UK, as you, as you know, doesn't really have an industry. I mean, it's a cottage industry and, and, and people... You know, like the First World War, pour out the trenches and get mown down and a few stagger on and, uh, and people who make a feature film never make another one and, and often when you do it goes straight to... Vi I mean, so why not go Hollywood? Why not go sit poolside? Why not use the agents, the managers and do the whole thing? I don't want to live in Los Angeles, basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can understand why people go... It's a very seductive city it's got its good points it's got its bad points but I just don't like the unrelenting fakery of the business that you get in that town you don't know if people are telling you the truth or not you don't know if they like stuff it's, it's like I was saying before about you know you need, you need genuine honest opinions and I just don't think you get them in Los Angeles not over the desk when you're talking to people in meetings. Were you pointing to Shirley at that point? No, I, was, I wasn't. That <laughs> <all>. <laughs> well, it's true you do get you know so you're going to try and do it from here so you're you're, you're you're doing it the difficult way. Well, I want to write in the British film industry. That's the thing. That's what I've always wanted to do. Getting the Sherlock Holmes job we came out of nowhere. I had no real ambition to write in Hollywood. It was... I still find it astonishing now, to be perfectly honest. Like, and I've gone this ludicrous route of breaking into the British film industry by coming back over the Atlantic from Los Angeles. But uh, ultimately, I want, to, I want to do it over here. I mean, there are companies, there are production companies in Britain who are covered by the umbrella of... of, of American companies who can, you know, make fairly, you know, big budget films. It's just um, they're not obviously making as many as they do in Los Angeles. And what do you want to write? I mean, do you see yourself particular genres, particular story types? Well, I've spent 20 years writing comedy and now I'm writing historical action films, which is quite bizarre. So <laughs> I just, if I can write stuff that I think is good by the time I get to the end of the draft, I'll, I'll be happy with it.
One or two last questions. Any any last questions out, out there? Gentleman again here. How happy are you like when you're writing a story, for example, Sherlock Holmes, your original story, if you take it? I mean, you probably write uh, quite a bit to impress the uh, uh, producers or the people with the money, mm. basically, to get, get, get the job as well. So, I mean, taken... As an overall thing, how happy are you with your original story? I was really happy with the script that was turned in to Warner Brothers. I was very happy with. I mean, I wouldn't have turned it in until I got to a point where I'm happy with it. I've got to satisfy satisfy myself in doing that. Because in terms of, of of writing screenplays, then even if no one rewrites you, it's never going to be the same on the screen. Because I mean, basically, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the last draft of the script is written in the editing room, so it always changes. It always goes somewhere. So in terms of job satisfaction, that draft that I turn in when I leave the project, I've got to be personally satisfied with that for me, you know. I mean, I can do the things that satisfy the people as well, but the core of it's got to be me being satisfied by it. Were there other, other scenes maybe, like in, in the story, or plot, plots, uh, you know, uh, that, that you may have kind of uh, integrated into the story that you thought that they might not like, so you kind of kept away from it? No, I mean, that really, that process of deciding what people might like or, not, or, or don't like happens quite early on when, you, when you're trying to work out what the basic shape of the story will be. When I'm actually writing it, it's, it's, it's all for me. and it's all, I mean, I'm bouncing stuff backwards and from bouncing pages to the producer and stuff, but my threshold of what I think is quality has to be passed for me. Um, and things, even if things are suggested to me, if the producer suggests things to me, I'll argue the toss until we can find a point where I'm satisfied with it as well as he's satisfied with it. You know, in the end, you can't write anything that isn't coming from the no, heart. No, no, exactly. You you've, got to, you've, got to, sure. you've got to have some belief in it. In fact, yeah. there's some conversations that can be, are you going to stay around, is there drinks sure, in, yeah, the, in the yeah, bar yeah. or something? Um, just final question really from, from me about, I mean, have you got any advice for people at London Film School who are going to go out into the, into the world and um, try and make their way? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the classic trite bit of, advice really is you've just got to believe that you want to do it you've got to have the passion to do it because you know I mean I started making films when I was 14 on a Super 8 camera I've been doing things in and out of the business in various states since 1980 since 1989 sorry um, and I was happy doing it on whatever level and it's just you never know when a break's going to happen you never know what direction it's going to go but you've got to keep doing it I mean I firmly believe that this industry is is there's a lot of people in this industry who aren't any good at their jobs and they get paid a lot of money to do jobs they're not any good at so if you're good at your job there's room for you in the industry it's just a question of how long do you stick with it and get in there and I think you know if you've got the passion to do it you stick with it all the way what about <coughs> screenwriting any particular uh, tips you would give people who are writing trying to write screenplays feature screenplays um <laughs> I don't really know how to answer that question um I'll tell you one thing I don't believe in. I don't really believe in writer's block. I think writer's block is often used as an excuse. You can have days when you think you can't write anything. If you force it out of yourselves, you'll find there's still useful stuff in it. Like, don't not write because you think you're blocked. Just go for it. Like, it's, That's like, good. So if any writing students come to me and say, oh, they're blocked, yeah. I'd say that it doesn't exist. I think right? it's, I mean, I, th I think excuse. Uh, rare occasions people drive themselves mad doing it. Like, yeah, mm -hmm. but I mean, I think really it's often just... You can fight. It's like walking through a stitch. You can fight your way through writer's block. Yeah. You've certainly fought your way through many <laughs> writer's blocks, and here you are, Michael John, an inspiration to us all. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.